we are in one of the most dangerous macroeconomic setups we can be in if you're an investor, but also if you are an actor in the private sector of, of the economy. So the combination of this slowdown in the rate of growth, while central banks are removing accommodation at a relatively fast pace, it's a very difficult one to handle for both financial markets and the real economy. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion. On Wall Street, it's often said that the bond market is where the smart money resides. And after decades of rising prices and declining yields in bonds, a secular reversal may now be in play. Yields have been steadily rising since the pandemic lows in 2020, and now the Federal Reserve and other world central banks are embarking on rate hikes. To find out what the bond market is telling us about the future it sees ahead, we welcome macro analyst and former bond portfolio manager Alfonso Pecatiello to the program. Alf, thanks so much for joining us all the way from the Netherlands. <laughs> Adam, nowadays on Zoom, it, it's not much of a traveling effort, but I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks. I know it's still a time zone juggling effort, so thank you. Um, well, look, Alf, we've got a lot of questions for you about the bond market based on some of your recent writings. But before we do, I just want to ask you the question I ask all my guests at the outset, just at a very high level, and you're a macro specialist. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? So from a very big picture perspective, Adam, I would say we are in one of the most dangerous macroeconomic setups we can be in if you're an investor, but also if you are an actor in the private sector of, of the economy. And that is because the economic growth impulse has been slowing down since last summer, which means we're still growing. So GDP prints are still positive and are likely to be positive, but we are slowing the rate of growth we have been seeing the slowdown of the rate of growth since summer last year. And at the same time, central banks are in a very tight spot as inflationary pressures have picked up. Now for too long, even uh, threatening inflation expectations to be de-anchored on the upside, which is one of the worst enemies for a central bank. And therefore, they will be tightening monetary policy very aggressively. So the combination of this slowdown in the rate of growth while central banks are removing accommodation at a relatively fast pace, it's a very difficult one to handle for both financial markets and the real economy. All right. Um, so you talk about the slowing growth impulse, um, and then you also mentioned that you know central banks are beginning to withdraw their accommodation. Um, are those correlated, or is there a causal relation going on there? All right. So I always make a distinction for my audience that I learned, uh, you know, to do and and apply throughout my career. There are structural drivers and cyclical drivers of growth, of interest rates, of financial markets. And so if we talk about the growth, the structural drivers of the growth are relatively simply, simple to identify. We're talking about demographics and we're talking about productivity at the end of the day. So if you would let the economy just run at its potential growth rate, Adam, it would grow basically driven by demographics and by productivity. So how many people actively contribute to the economy and how productive are these people and how productive is the capital that we throw and we generate throughout our economy. Now, the other part is the cyclical part that we overlay on top of this structural trend, right? So we have a structural growth and then we have cycles around the structural growth. And the cycles are influenced by many variables. The most important one being credit. 
the amount of credit that the private sector has access to at any point in time. And that can be simplified by you know, one example. Effectively, Adam, credit is the process of creating new money that the private sector can spend at any point in time. If somebody credits your account all of a sudden, then in this cycle, you will feel much more buoyant, right? You will go out, you will spend, you will buy a house, which is more expensive because you have credit, you have access to credit. So you, can, you will feel much more enthusiastic about your growth potential, although the potential hasn't changed much, but the cycle is in your favor. And now if you do the opposite and you withdraw or you limit the amount of credit to the private sector, the opposite will happen, right? And so at this stage in, in the 2020s, structural growth in the US, for example, is actually pretty low because the labor force isn't expanding. It's getting older. We don't make enough kids. The US is a decent net immigration profile, but overall in developed economies, the labor supply growth doesn't really look good. And going forward, it doesn't look better either. And on the productivity side, we have been ranging around one, one and a half percent productivity growth year after year, which means we become more productive. We, we become smarter. Technology has helped, but before it permeates the entire economy such that we see a huge boost in productivity, it will take a while. So structural growth is what it is. And the cyclical growth we have seen in 2020 and 2021 was huge. It was driven, especially in 2021, mostly by the fiscal handouts. They were massive. Checks were sent home. Banks were lending to the private sector because the government was backing up their losses in case there were any. And so the private sector felt buoyant. Now, in 2022, we are starting to see the opposite effect. When is the last time a stimulus check reached Americans? It's a while ago now. The impulse of this credit creation has slowed down, which leads obviously to the private sector reassessing their growth trend and their decisions when it comes to consumptions and investments. All right, that's a great explanation. Um, I, I would probably add to your um, your first bucket. I can't remember exactly what you referred it to, but these are sort of the structural uh, uh, elements. Demographics are very deflationary, as you were yeah. saying here. Um, the other one that I would say is is debt levels. Correct. Right? Okay, and as you're agreeing here, yeah. So um, uh, we sort of at this point, then I don't want to put words in your mouth, but we have a little bit of the worst of both worlds. Then <laughs> we 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 have this sluggish, uh, you know, sort of fundamental growth outlook, but on the cyclical level, the tide is going out as well, right? Um, okay, you're nodding here as well. Um, all right, so uh, let's then dive into uh, what the credit market is telling us about all this. Um, in your recent writings, uh, you say uh, we're at an important global macro crossroads. Um, and you talk about that where central banks are removing accommodation, as we were just saying, right as uh, global growth is slowing down, as we were just talking about. Um, of course, this is now all exacerbated by the political uncertainty that, that Ukraine is kicking up um, and redrawing global trade and there's embargoes and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so can you explain how significant this moment in time is? Is 2022 going to be sort of an inflection point year? This is a, yes, it's global macro crossroads, as I said on the Macro Compass, uh, my newsletter. Um, the reason is that as you slow down global growth and you remove monetary policy accommodation at the same time, the private sector starts to suffer. One of the tricks, Adam, is that you make new borrowing every time cheaper and cheaper for the new marginal borrower to make credit flow 
go through the economy at a pretty cheap level. As you said, that levels are very important. If you want to lever up even more on an already levered up economy, you need to make it pretty cheap to borrow, right? And so we have seen real interest rates go down aggressively, mortgage rates in inflation adjusted levels, reaching levels around about 0% on third year mortgage rates somewhere last year. Third year mortgage rates in nominal terms were 3%, inflation expectation were 2.5%, that's last summer which meant the private uh, sector in America could borrow at prospected real interest rates on a mortgage at around about 0%. That's pretty cheap credit. You have to agree on that. So that encourages people to, to, to lever up, right? And now you're seeing exactly the opposite. You're seeing real wages being reduced. Inflation is growing faster than nominal wages. So the purchasing power changes of American is going down from a wage perspective. And mortgage rates have started to go up. The Federal Reserve is promising to tighten conditions to slow down these inflationary pressures, which makes all this wealth mechanism effect basically reverse, right? It's a very complicated picture for financial markets, and you're seeing several corners of the market start to react to that. Credit spreads have widened. The yield curve in America has inverted under a metric I look at very closely, and we can talk about that too. It's already inverted. It's a big macro signpost for cycles, and you are seeing risk assets have large drawdown all over the world, actually. China very recently, but the US, the S&P is down 10 to 12% year to date already. That's a severe drawdown. So the market has been speaking pretty clearly. The private sector is having problem digesting this change. All right. And, and I mean, who knows this, and we'll get into this, but things could get even worse from here, right? You know, if, if the economy continues to slow down further, uh, there's the risk of tipping into recession. You sort of mentioned real wages going down. Um, right now we have this thing going on, at least in America, called the Great Resignation, where people have become very uh, choosy about whether to go back to work and what type of work to go back to. And I think they're, you know, COVID and the lockdowns and, and, and the stimulus and all that stuff created this this environment where people could afford to do that, the question is how much longer will they be able to afford to do that? And if we start going into recession and those open job listings go away and all of a sudden jobs are hard to get and people are getting squeezed uh, by all the forces you just mentioned, I mean, things could really turn around there in a, in a, in a way that's not good for the US household. Um, all right, I want, to, I want to dig into that further, but um, I, I do want to talk about um, some of the charts that you've, you've shown in some of your recent pieces. And by the way, if you have a chart that you want to speak to, just speak to it and we'll, we'll overlay it uh, during editing. Um, you, in a recent piece, uh, wrote about the good, the bad, and the ugly of what the bond market was telling us. So if we could just dial through each of those really quickly, starting with the good, which you said that long-term inflation expectations haven't yet uh, become anchored to the upside in the credit markets. Can you just provide a little more detail around that? Yeah. So Adam, um, I always say that I am lucky to have covered um, basically financial markets and run a large portfolio because I could speak to policymakers, to central bankers, to prime ministers. So I understand more or less where their incentive scheme lies. And so for a central banker, I, I actually wrote an article, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And the good side of the inflationary pressure so far that if you look at market implied inflation expectation down the road, so five year forward, five years, a very watched metric, it tells people between 2027 and 2032, so five year forward from now, five year inflation expectations, where do they lie? What is the average outcome that the market participant in fixed income markets is expecting? 
And as you said before, the fixed income market is known to be one of the most smart out there, right? So people tend to watch that metric. And in the US, it's been round about two and a half percent for now more or less a year, two and a half percent on CPI, while the Federal Reserve targets PCE. PCE is a measure of inflation in America, which is slightly lower than CPI because of its composition. So you can say long-term inflation expectation between 2027 and 2032, according to market participants, slightly above 2%. Is that worrisome? Well, not really. The Federal Reserve told us somewhere in 2019, I think, where they did the, the policy review, that they do a flexible average inflation targeting, which means that they want to average 2% over a period of time. And as they have undershoot 2% for a while, actually having inflation slightly around 2% when it comes to expectations would be a welcome outcome for them. Around about 2%. That's the good side of the inflation expectation story. Well, there is a bad side and an ugly side, unfortunately. The bad side, uh, as I showed in the, in the picture uh, at, at this Macro Compass article, is that if you look at the distribution of probabilities of this inflation down the road, the picture starts to change a bit. And I look at distribution of probabilities because having been a trader and having talked to smart investors out there, this, the best investors out there always thinks in probability terms, not in one outcome, not in black or white. There is always a probability. You don't know in advance what's going to realize. So then I thought to myself, let's look at the probability distribution implied by options. In this case, I did a study on inflation down the road. And this probability has shifted, the distribution has shifted in an interesting way. Compared to one year ago, the mean, so the average expected outcome on inflation between 2027 and 2032 has moved from 2.6 to 3.4%. All right, so that's quite a change. It starts to deviate from the 2% inflation target already in a bad way, right? So that's the bad side of the study. There is another bad side is that the distribution has a mean, but also has some tails. And the, the, the right tail, which in this case would be the, the probability that people expect very high inflation prints between 2027 and 2032 has become pretty fat, which means it incorporates a higher probability that these very dis disruptive high inflation prints could actually come true. That's what the bond market is telling you. I move the distribution to the right, I expect higher inflation, and I expect a higher probability of very high inflation. And that is pretty scary for a central banker because you start to lose control on expectations and you start to attach a higher probability that high inflationary environments might realize. That's bad. And then there is the ugly part. <laughs> well, I mean, the ugly part is that you effectively are now in a very tight spot. The tight spot you're in is that you do recognize that real growth is slowing down. You can see it in the data. PMIs, retail sales, other data coming in are okay, but they're deteriorating. And so what do you do as a central banker here? Effectively, this is a demand uh, slowdown and a supply bottleneck big pickup. Also, Russia, Ukraine isn't helping. Now, China has been somehow locking down large provinces which means that the supply of very important um, commodities and materials will become even more complicated to get for companies, which means producer prices are going to go up, which means inflationary pressures and supply bottlenecks are going to remain. That's the ugly part. What do you do as a central banker? 
if you tighten very aggressively to show to the market that you're committed in slowing inflation, you run the risk that you will tighten hard in a slowdown, which will have a large impact on the private sector. Credit spreads will widen, equities will, will, will drop. So that's a pretty ugly situation to be in. All right, and, and you show in your chart here <clears throat> that uh, real yields have been dropping like a stone recently uh, in, in the credit markets and that um, uh, those, uh, those yields, that yield curve there, that, that drop off in yields uh, typically presages uh, a similar drop off in corporate earnings. Um, there's about a 15 month lag period between them. So it's almost like giving you a, a glimpse of what's gonna happen a little over a year down the road. Yeah, so earnings are already starting to suffer a bit. You see the first analysts capitulating. You had Goldman Sachs start to reduce their level for uh, their price level for the S&P 500 by the end of the year. You have companies that are revising down on a net basis their earnings expectations. So th those are companies themselves that go out and start to give guidance to investors by telling them, uh, guys, we actually need to revise our rosy outlook to a less rosy outlook, right? And that's how it generally starts. And why is that happening? Because the top of credit has actually been closed, almost closed, or anyway, it's been uh, going much less strong through the private sector than it was in 2020 or 2021, which means the private sector has less marginal resources to use. And as it has less credit and less marginal resources to use at the cheap level, it tends to produce less or actually tends to revert back, remember, to the structural growth levels. The structural growth levels are pretty disappointing, even in America. In Europe, they are even worse, if you want to ask me. And so obviously, if companies start to reduce their earnings uh, perspectives for 2022 and 2023, the other driver of stock market returns is valuations. It's multiples, right? Change, changes in valuations. And now, obviously, valuations also become tricky at this point because the Federal Reserve is promising to make borrowing more expensive. It's promising to increase at least the front end of bond yields. We are seeing five-year bond yields in America, treasury yields going to 2%. Last time we saw that was a while ago which obviously gives investors an alternative where to invest their money to earn a return, which is marginally much more attractive than it was a year ago, while the overall situation for earnings and growth in the private sector and the real economy doesn't look that good anymore. So what do you think investors are going to do? They're obviously going to shift their portfolio as they're doing towards more defensive, more safety, which makes the valuation side of these companies also take a hit. So if earnings are going down and valuations are not that supported anymore by an easy monetary policy, then I wonder how is the stock market going to deliver returns this year? And I've been bearish. My trades are public, by the way. They're on Twitter. They're on the macro compass. I've been short risk assets since the beginning of the year exactly for this reason. I couldn't see the risk reward of being invested aggressively in risk assets if earnings are dropping and valuations are taking a hit as well. All right, great. And I want to ask you about your specific positioning in just a bit. Um, but uh, I just want to tug at this just a little bit further so folks really understand. So you're, you, you talk about how the cost of capital is going up, basically, is, is the credit right. that is available that's out there. There's less credit and it's more expensive, right? And when you value a stock, in theory, what you're doing is you're valuing the future income stream or, or earning stream from that stock. Um, 
there's something that a lot of investors will do called a discounted cash flow analysis, where they project out what they think the company's going to earn. Um, well, uh, and then what you do is you, you because of time value of money, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar, you know, 10 years out, uh, you apply what's called a discount rate on those, those earnings flows. Um, and the higher the discount rate, the lower the overall valuation for the company is. Well, as your weighted cost of capital increases, that discount rate becomes higher and the valuation of companies need to come down. So I'm just letting folks know that this is just a mathematical relationship here. Cost right. of capital goes up, equity prices have to go down. Uh, another way that stocks are valued is as an earn, you know, by, by multiples, uh, price to earnings multiple being the, the most famous. When people are more sanguine about the prospects for a, a company or its sector, they'll give it a higher multiple. When they are less sanguine, they will give it a lower multiple. So you basically have numerous ways in which, you know, valuations have to come down here as people are, you know, looking at, okay, the economy is not going to grow as much and capital is going to get more expensive. I've got to give this company a lower multiple going forward, right? So I see you nodding as I'm saying all this, but you know, this is, sounds like why you took your short positions at the beginning of the year, because you figured investors were going to start doing this math, given the macro conditions that you've been, you've been highlighting here. Pretty much, correct. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's get to the Fed just for a second, because in just a couple hours, it's too, too bad we couldn't uh, record this later on today, uh, just because we know what the Fed was, was going to have, have, you know, what they will have actually announced today. But it seems pretty widely expected that the Fed is going to say, all right, we're announcing our first rate hike um, of this new hiking cycle going forward. I think right now, most people's expectations are set that it's going to be a quarter uh, point rate hike. It's 25 basis points or 0.25%. Um, so, uh, Alf, let me just ask you, what, what do you expect the Fed to do today? You know, do you agree that that's probably what's going to happen? And then going forward from here, um, because, you know, 25 basis points is kind of a drop in the bucket when you're facing inflation at 7.5%. I agree with you. So, um, I expect the Fed today to deliver 25 basis points. I think it's well telegraphed and probably the military escalation is going to lend them a hand to do 25 basis point only as a start. But what matters the most for bond traders, as I was one of them until a few months ago, is forward guidance. So what is the Fed going to tell us they're going to do, right? Because bond markets are very forward looking. So we tend to price in things immediately as soon as we got the information or the idea of what the Federal Reserve will be forced or will do over the next future. And so there, I think the incentive scheme for Powell is, is very skewed very skewed towards um, sending a message that the Federal Reserve will not accept inflation expectation to the anchor on the upside, and they want to control this outcome and make sure this tail risk doesn't realize. Now, we have spot inflation at 7.5%, as you said, year on year. Now, obviously, if you make these numbers continue to go up without intervening, there is a high risk that inflation expectation will also be anchor on the upside. And that's what the central banker does not want to see because their mandate is to keep inflation and expectations about inflation around about 2%. That's their mandate, which means I expect him to get out to the forward guidance that will say, we are committed to, watch these words, hike above neutral rates. So how it works is that central bankers have these models. They estimate what the neutral rate for the economy is. The neutral rate is a rate at which the economy runs at, at its potential growth doesn't overheat, doesn't cool down that much. It just runs, you know, runs and delivers its potential growth. It's the Goldilocks level. Yeah, 
you can say so. Inflation doesn't, doesn't go out of control. It's not a deflationary environment. We just grow, but we grow according to our potential growth levels. So America basically would grow at a nominal rate of 3% roundabout every year if this neutral rate will be respected. Now, the neutral rate in America is estimated to be around about 2% at the moment, 2 to 2.5%. This is the range of estimates for nominal neutral rate. Now, if Powell would tell you, literally, I want to try and hike above the neutral rate, he's telling you explicitly, I want the economy to slow down. I want the housing market to slow down. I want risk assets to take a breather here because I need inflation to be under control and inflation expectations to be under control as soon as possible. If he says that, if he doesn't go to neutral but goes beyond that, he shows willingness to go beyond this neutral level, that will be something to watch very carefully. Now, the bond market, Adam, interestingly, is already pricing the Federal Reserve to hike seven times this year, seven times 25 basis point, according to my calculations, round about 175 basis point of Federal Reserve hikes are priced in if I look at federal funds future uh, contracts for December 2022. 175 basis point hikes. I don't like to say seven hikes because there is nothing bounding the, the, binding the Federal Reserve to do 25 basis point hike at each meeting. They could do 50, they can do another 50 right away. There is nothing stopping them from doing that rather than their own perspective, their own forward guidance. The interesting part is that if I look at the same Fed funds future, instead of December 2022, I look for a maturity, which is December 2024 or December 2025. Do you know what's pricing in? It's pricing in the Federal Reserve to hike to 2% and then be able to do nothing anymore for, from 2023, 2024 onwards. Actually, there is a chance priced in the Federal Reserve will have to cut rates in 2024. I want to repeat it again, cut rates in 2024. The bond market has made up their mind very strongly about the fact that the Federal Reserve can only go to roundabout neutral rates. That's 2%, as I said before. And if they cross, if they even try to signal they're going to cross that, the overleveraged pr private sector and public sector and highly valued uh, financial market assets, they can't take this. They can't take this, which will force the hand of the Federal Reserve to cut again. That's the stance of the bond market. That's the flat yield curve you hear over and over again, which projects hikes at the front end. And once these hikes are done, the bond market is telling you, I'm sorry, but that's it. All right. Thanks so much for explaining that so well, um, <clears throat> because folks, uh, you know, we have a lot of experts on this program. There's a lot of people out there on, on other financial media channels uh, who are giving their opinion of what they think is going to happen, their, their best guess. But the bond market is where people are actually allocating their capital against this. So it's really important to, to listen to what it's telling you, because that's where the big people are putting their money. Um, all right, Alf. So it sounds like you're saying, uh, you know, and on this program, we've talked a lot with a lot of different experts who basically say, look, you know, I expect the Fed to hike up until a point where something breaks and then it just doesn't feel like it can hike any higher and it actually might have to pivot. Right. And you're basically saying the bond market is telling us what what its math is for that calculation. It says it's going to be able to hike rates. Uh, 175 basis points or almost two percent. Uh, and then it expects that uh, things are going to get so 
wobbly in the economy or, or, or painful in terms of blowback for the Fed that it's going to have to reverse. Um, so uh, I'm thinking about the markets here. Um, so the, the higher interest rates go, as we talked about, um, the more that corporate America gets hit, um, the more that stocks feel pressure. Um, and, uh, you know, right now inflation is, is, is a lot higher. You said, you know, another 2% that the Fed could hike. Well, let's just assume for a second, it's probably not going to happen, but let's assume for a second inflation stays at seven and a half percent. You know, there's still net five and a half percent inflation after that. Right. So the inflation problem hasn't necessarily gone away. So, uh, just walk me through the logic that the bond market is thinking the Fed's going to do there, because it really is standing on a precipice where it basically says, I've got to sacrifice the public, you know, the households to just a future of higher inflation, um, or I got to come and try to save the economy. And, and it's kind of hard to feel like either of those is a win. If, if, if you lose one of those two things, you, you really don't win in the end. <laughs> So pretty much it boils back to uh, market implied inflation expectation. So spot inflation is seven and a half percent, right? But the Federal Reserve has a, has a mandate to make sure that long term, medium to long term inflation and inflation expectations range about two percent. That's their mandate, right? So the bond market is looking at this mandate and is saying, let me assess the probabilities they are successful in that, right? And so the probabilities they're successful in that are so far assessed by the bond market to be, well, we can get there. We discussed before that inflation expectation for the next five years have a mean at 3.4% on a CPI basis, which PCE will be still above 3%, which is way above the 2% we talked about, but it's still below 7.5%, right? So basically it's saying inflation is a rate of change, Adam. So the rate of change that we saw in this basket of goods has been very strong year on year, but going forward as the new base to start with will be March, 2022. In March, 2023, you know, I expect some base effects. So it will keep on growing. These inflationary pressures will keep on growing, but at a reduced growth rates until we range about 3% for the next five years, right? That's what the bond market is saying. At the same time, the bond market is saying, I, I see you Fed, I actually am pushing you here because this, this conversion to three, three and a half percent is still very slow. Your target is 2%. So you need to do something to make sure that you go not only to this 3%, but possibly even lower than that back to your mandate. So bond market is then telling the Fed, I'm going to price you for 175 to 200 basis point of hikes in 12 to 15 months, right? So you have to do this. And this will be successful, effective. That's what the bond market, together with inflation expectation, is saying will be roundabout successful to bring things under control. There, it's a painful road. We are seeing that already with drawdowns across asset classes and credit spreads widening. But the bond market is saying you will somehow manage to do that. Now, my assessment on this is that if the Federal Reserve wants really to send a strong signal and make sure that these inflation expectations are controlled and is still risk avoided, they at some point will have to tell markets, we have to do a lot. And a lot means hike above neutral rates and do quantitative tightening in a pretty aggressive way. We haven't discussed about quantitative tightening, which is the opposite of quantitative easing. So instead of draining bonds from the system, collateral from the system, and giving the system reserves, 
QT is the opposite. It says the private sector, here is your collateral, good luck with it, find a clearing price where you can absorb it. And by the way, give me back those reserves, please, at the same time. It's a pretty complex process and there are speeds at which you can do that, Adam. And so if the Federal Reserve wants to send a signal, you will hear them tonight accelerating the schedule of quantitative tightening and telling people perhaps that there is a chance they have to go above neutral rates. Now, if they do any of those, I can tell you the private sector and the financial, um, the risk assets in the, in the financial markets won't take it well. And I expect them to have to, have to lean towards this direction of strong, committed hawkishness sooner rather than later. All right, great. Well, let's now transition into kind of your market outlook and where you're positioning. Um, so if I heard you correctly there, um, basically the Fed quantitative tightening, um, it's going to start saying, all right, guys, I'm force feeding you back your bonds, take them, <laughs> figure out whatever they're going to sell for. It's probably a lot less than what I bought them for. Uh, and I'm going to make you know money more expensive for you. You know, Basically, give me, give, give me cash back, give me your reserves back in, in return for these bonds. Um, and uh, as you just said, uh, the, the, if the Fed's aggressive about this, the markets are really not going to like it. So the markets are down about 10 to 12 percent so far this year, as you mentioned earlier. Um, you're just speculating here, uh, you know, how much further do you think they could go down, given your current estimation of how aggressive the Fed's going to be from here? Yeah, so I, as I used to say, uh, running a $20 billion portfolio, instead of asking people what do they think, ask them what's their trade? What do they have on? Because you know, uh, their, their investment portfolio speaks louder than their words. So I'm going to tell you uh, literally what I have on. Our interview with Alf continues over in part two, which will be released tomorrow as soon as we're through editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as the little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to click the like button too while you're at it. And if the major macro threats ALF has highlighted in this interview have you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio, keeping in mind the trends and risks that ALF has highlighted here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our video interview with Alfonso Pecatiello. Thank you.